Hi, I'm Renee Echeverria, a writer from Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trekmate. Trekmate presents another awesome interview brought to you by Kate Walsh. This time, Kate talks to TNG and DS9 writer Renee Echeverria. I'd like to thank both Kate and Renee for their time in bringing you this interview. If you'd like to leave us feedback on this, then make sure you head on over to our forum at forum.trekmatefamily.com and let us know what you thought. There is one man who can claim credit for being a Star Trek fan, writer on The Next Generation, producer of Deep Space Nine, and executive producer of shows such as Dark Angel, The 4400, Medium, Castle, Terra Nova, and Team Wolf. He goes by the name of Rene Echevarria, and he's here to chat with me today. Welcome, Rene. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Renee, you're um, one of the many people that has uh, worked on Star Trek over the years that started out as a fan of the original series. I was indeed, yeah. Um, you know, growing up in the, uh, I'm dating myself now, but growing up in the early 70s, uh, the show was on uh, in syndication. It was on reruns at uh, five o'clock on Channel 44 in my in my town, in my hometown of Florida. And uh, yeah, I just, I loved it. I never missed it. Excellent. And uh, who was your favorite character? I mean, I was definitely into the whole Kirk and Spock friendship. And I, I think I I think I, I related to both of them in different ways, maybe more so Spock. You know, I, I think, you know, I had a few friends who would indulge me in, in you know, playing Star Trek. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I liked, you know, the whole logic thing. It somehow appeals. It appeals to the adolescent boy. Mm-hmm. Who thinks, you know, the, the precocious adolescent boy who thinks he can figure anything out just with his with his brain. Um, <laughs> there was something very Spock-like in that sense. And did you have a pair of Spock ears? <laughs> uh, I would not go that far. <laughs> not go that far. I would just sort of, you know, I could take a cardboard box and, you know, make controls and, you know, take a few things out of the garage, old electronics that my dad had and end up under the desk somewhere and turn that into a, a you know, a shuttle, yeah. <laughs> you know, endlessly for hours. So. And what about um, merchandise or, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much stuff was around in those days, but, but as no, you got yeah, older, what, did you have a favorite item, a collectible? There, the only items you could get, or, you know, at least easily, you know, and the internet didn't exist, of course, so you couldn't really find things unless you were, you know, uh, but with mo- the model kits, mm. you know, so I definitely had an enterprise and a, um, and also that you could build models of the, of the phaser and the tricorder, you know, of course, then use them to play with, yeah. you know, uh, and the, and the communicator, you know, and those were prized possessions, of course. Uh, anyway, I, I wish my mom had, hadn't tossed all that stuff out because I, I was so jealous of Ron Moore because he still had his models uh, and he had them in his office at, um, at Star Trek. So I was so jealous of his, his actual original models from, uh, from his boyhood. And you're thinking his mum's so much cooler. She just knew good stuff when she saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, well, we might talk a little bit about your um, – 
your working life. Prior to getting into uh, showbiz, you you actually graduated with a history degree. That's right, yes. I, I find that quite interesting because I studied history myself at university. And one thing I'm, I'd like to know from you is what historical figure would you most like to have played in a hollow novel? Wow, what historical figure would I most like to have played? Uh, an actual historical figure. I mean, it's I, I, more fictional characters. I it would be easier for me, you know. Um, it, oddly, you know, than historical figures. But anyway, <laughs> even though things ended very badly for him, uh, Galileo. Okay. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I kind of did have the chance to play him in in a hollow novel. In a sense, I mean, one of the I'll never forget this. One of the best. Uh, things I ever, uh, learning experience I ever had in college was a, a course on the history of science. And the professor had us debate whether the earth uh, went around the, the sun or the sun went around the earth using what was known about physics mm. at the time of Galileo. Or maybe it was Copernicus, <laughs> now that I think of it. But <laughs> also, you know, knowing, knowing what they knew, it actually made more sense or believing what they believed about physics aside from cosmology or whether you know god uh how god would want it it you know and, and i believe the people said that the that saying that the earth was the center of the universe won the debate mm. and it was just really instructive so cool well i actually have another question um along historical lines from one of our uh, uh twitter followers and uh, his name is uh, Colin Higgins, uh, and he's asked if you had a time ship and could observe any moment in history, what would you pick? Um, well, I think I might be very curious to see the crucifixion of Christ. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read it. There's a great book by uh, Robert Silverberg. Um, who wrote a really fun, rompy sort of science fiction novel about uh, time travel had become sort of tourism. Um, and people, and this guy's job was to take tourists back to historical events. And of course, the crucifixion was a huge, big one. And of course, the more tourists he would bring, the more often there would be gr a group of, literally the, the crowd would swell to, swell to 10,000. Mm. And there would be his own, you know, there would be multiple versions of him <laughs> oh, <right>. different parts <laughs> with different groups um and that was a sort of take of that silver book he made you know it was, aside from the crucifixion part it was actually a lot of fun and, and of course a lot of possibility for big messes um when there are multiple versions of you running around with tourists so <laughs> definitely uh, um well renee before becoming a, a writer you actually moved to new york to pursue an acting career and um I'd be interested to know if you could have played any Star Trek character as an actor, which one would it have been and why? If I could have played any Star Trek character, mm. huh. Well, I mean, I certainly would never have, I wouldn't even presume to play any of the, you know, the iconic ones. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I was one of the people who, it was a little hard for me you know, when the new Star Trek movie came out, the J.J. Abrams version, just imagining anyone ever playing Kirk. Yeah. You know, um, and I have to say, I'm, you know, that was a big buy for me, and and I bought it. 
I thought he was terrific. He had he had the spirit of Kirk mm-hmm. uh, in that movie. But um, oh, I don't know if there's any character I could play. I don't. I I would think I'd like to play a shapeshifter from Deep Space Nine. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to be able to do that. Shift around and turn but, into things. But could you stand so, being in the makeup chair for hours on end? I don't know how they how they did that. I mean that that hours, you know, and, and you could see it. There were times they had great. I'm thinking of Armin Shimmerman, and I'm thinking of Michael Dorn, um, you know, who who just put in so many hours in that chair. Mm. And sometimes it really got to them. There were times, you know, Armin would say where he just felt like he was he was going to lose and he was going to tear it tear this thing off his face, you know. Yep. Even getting out of makeup was an ordeal because you know these prosthetics. They cost money, and they're reused the next day or the next time you shoot. So you can't just reach up and grab them. Mm. You're in. Just had a twelve-hour day. You're hot, and you still. And now you need to go for another half hour of getting out of makeup. You know. Yeah. I'll never forget one day, we were watching dailies, and um, on Deep Space Nine, and uh, I was watching, and I was going, you know, but Armin just doesn't look good. I, I think actually, what I actually said was. Um, I turned to Ira Bear and, and, and Ron and the guys, and I said, I said, Cork doesn't look as handsome as he usually does. <laughs> and everyone thought I was joking. I was like, no, there's something odd, you know, and, and that's how into the show you get, you know, when you work on things that, you know, you, you know, Cork thought of himself as handsome, and I guess I, I did too. And we were all looking, and somebody, Ron, I think, said, you know, I think you're right. There's something isn't quite right. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked into it, and we realized they put, they put Ron's nose on him. They put his brother's nose on Oh, no. <laughs> and it was very similar, but a little bit off. Um, I, I think we actually never, I don't think we reshot it. I think we left it that way. Well, that, that would be an interesting one for fans to try and spot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when you first got into to writing, um, you were actually uh, based in New York and you submitted a spec script for what ended up being the episode The Offspring. Yes, that's right. So um, at that stage, what made you decide to, to do that and eventually pursue writing? And, you know, what challenges did you face as a fledgling writer? Well, um, as, we, as we talked about earlier, I was a huge fan of the original show. And, and when the new show started, I was very keen to see, see how it was. And um, I didn't know anything about Hollywood or television. Or, you know, I was living in New York. I was trying to do theater. You know, I was doing plays and coffee houses and basements, theaters, you know, usually there were more of us on stage than there were in the audience. Um, and, you know, so this was an entirely new thing for me. And I wrote what I thought was a cool episode of, of Star Trek and I put it in an envelope and I sent it to Paramount Pictures. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? um, and, and I did that several times. I wrote two or three um, that I sent and, and I never heard back. But somewhere off screen that I didn't know about, they began, Michael Piller decided to, because they were getting so many scripts, to hire some readers. And a sort of a a system was placed in motion to actually look at these things the fans were sending in. And I think Ron Moore and myself were the two writers who really, who came through that. Mm. We were spec script writers. Um... And who sort of got identified. So, you know, we're, I'm obviously very grateful for, for that program and for Michael. 
um, for having the foresight and, the, and you know, and to know that there was a, a huge fan community out there that maybe could contribute to the show. Mm, and it really is quite unique to Star Trek, not just that practice of, of you know, picking spec scripts, uh, unsolicited scripts, um, but also the, the, that passion of the fans in sending them in in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I, you know, I mean, I have to say the entire time I was there, which, you know, it was seven years uh, that I was actually on staff, and one of my jobs was taking pitches. And I, ne- I never forgot, you know, that that's where I came from. And I always tried to give the people coming in to pitch, um, really give them a fair shake and really listen to what they had to say. And, you know, people, and nothing gave me more pleasure than to p- be able to pick up the phone and call somebody, you know, and say, hey, guess what? We want to buy your your story or your script or your idea. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I bought stories from, we bought stories, but I, you know, things about pitches I heard I, I, from a 13 year old uh, in, in Texas, you know, mm. uh, that I think became true Q, you know, or a school teacher, you know, um, and it's just such a thrill, such mm. a thrill to, to help them become part of it too. So um, talking specifically about the offspring, if you were uh, Data's offspring instead of Lal, what gender and species would you have chosen for yourself? Well, God, I, I probably would have chosen. I I probably I think I would have maybe been a male Vulcan. Cool, with with uh, legitimate have, ears. With legitimate ears, yeah. I mean, I always I was always curious about that. Um, <laughs> they're very strong, and I always wanted to. You know, they're very strong, and I always wanted to know how to do that neck pinch thing yeah handy from time to time and the mind meld and the mind meld yeah very cool now um another episode that uh was a classic for you uh was um i borg and that was really the first episode in the next generation to explore that experience of individuality from a borg perspective and in doing so, I think it laid the foundation for much of what we saw later in like Voyages, depictions of the Borg and Seven of Nine and so forth. Um, what was your inspiration and thought process in developing that story? Um, I mean, at the time I was still um, living in New York. I was freelancing for the show. I had sold The Offspring and um, I'd written a couple other, other episodes. But I, I was still very much about, you know, I, I had to basically – pound on the door and say, I've got an idea and, and, and sell it, you know, to, mm. to Michael Piller. Um, I was mulling, I mean, it just, I, I found that what helped me in those days was, was asking hard questions about the characters or, you know, and I, well, who are they really? What would they want? What would challenge them most? Um, you know, data was G. Roddenberry had described him as Pinocchio. Mm. Uh, and I, and, you know, he wanted more than anything to be human. And it occurred to me, you know, for, for the offspring, well, what if Data decided he wanted to experience fatherhood, if he wanted to have a child? Uh, with the Borg, um, like everyone else, I would have been, you know, sort of blown away by the best of both worlds. Uh, you know, this cliffhanger and, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? And it was, you know, that surely that was that was a watershed for the series, you know, uh, moment, you know, where p- people were suddenly talking about it. Uh, in a new way. And I wanted to know what happened to the Borg and, you know, and, and, and a lot of Borg stories have been pitched and Michael and Rick, you know, just 
felt like, look, if, 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 if you can't top the best of both worlds, let's not even bother. So I went smaller, you know, and I just thought, oh, wait a minute. You know, what if there's a, what would, what would a one board be like alone? You know, and that, mm. that was the genesis of the idea. Well, you know, if we found a crashed ship and we brought a board board and, and, you know, what would he be like? Um, and that's where yeah, I came up with that whole, you know, designation thing where they have their, the number of a number, you know, third of five or yeah. seven of nine or whatever, uh, rather than having names. I, I got to make up a lot of stuff. And the use that. of pronouns, you know, as well, you know. Yeah, you know, that, that was a, that was a. That was one of those things that came to me while I was writing it. You know, uh, I'd already we'd already sort of broken the story, and I thought, gosh, you know, could I pull this off? Could I actually have him never use the word "I" or "me" and see, you know, and see where that takes me? Mm. Um, and that the same thing happened with the whole Picard thing. You know, um, I wasn't planning it. You know, until they got in the room together, and I was sitting at my typewriter and I had Picard, you know, try this ruse you know, test this Borg in this moment where this, this, for a moment you go, is it, what is this, what's, what's going on? And then having and the, the two things sort of dovetailed in that moment when the, when the Borg uses the word I mm. for the first time and it made him realize something had changed. Yep. Okay, Renee, thanks for that. Um, next we're going to move into a new segment, which I've named in honor of a classic Deep Space Nine episode. So let's get into it with moving along with Alla Renee. Alamorain, count to four. Alamorain, count to four. Alamorain, then three more. Alamorain, if you can see. Alamorain, you'll come with me. Alamorain, you'll come with me. Now, this segment is a multiple choice element. And the whole point here is that we're going to have a few quick snappy questions for you, which you can answer, um, you know, just as a general member of the public, as a Star Trek fan like the rest of us. Um, I don't want you thinking too much because that gets okay. us into trouble. I'll try not to think too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's going to be good then. Okay. Here we go. First one. What species do you most relate to, Vulcans, Klingons, or Andorians? Vulcans. What would you rather eat, gach, tube grubs, or cellular peptide cake with mint frosting? Peptide cake with mint frosting. What would be your favourite TOS method for disarming an enemy? A Vulcan nerve pinch, a mint julep, or shirt ripping? <laughs> shirt ripping. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you rather vacation? Riser, the Celestial Temple, or the Great Link? Riser. Would you rather live in the Prime Universe, Mirror Universe, JJ's Universe, or the Animated Universe? I think I'd rather live in the Prime Universe. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get scored now? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to come back to moving along with Alan Renee later on, so I do warn you of that one, and okay. uh, then I'll let the listeners score you. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned uh, on the TNG Blu-ray Writer's Room feature that you were sometimes mistaken for being a female writer by uh, fans of the series. I want to know, have the other guys ever let you live that down? And what was the experience <laughs> like of working as a member of the writing awesome foursome at such a young age? Uh, it was a great experience. It was, um, you know, I don't, it, we were Brandon and, and Ron and, and I were, it was our first gig, you know, 
uh, Brandon had started as an intern uh, on the show, and Ron, as I said earlier, was you know sort of paralleled me in the sense that he was a huge fan and a spec script writer, and uh, and you know Brandon hadn't even seen the original series, <laughs> as he will as he will proudly tell people. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we all had our thing. We all had our you know things that we gravitated toward. Um, and, you know, Brandon gravitated toward these weird sci-fi premises, you know, mind, you know, mind messing with people's minds sort of thing. And Ron gravitated to these, a lot of military things and themes of honor and, and, and justice and, you know, how to do the right thing. And I tended to, I tended to go small sometimes and, and do love stories or, you know, simple little stories about, oh, what if Odo finds a little ball of goo? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he just, and it, he's not, it's, you know, can he, can he bring it back to life? What does it mean to him? You know? Mm. So, um, yeah. And I sometimes would get fan mail, you know, saying, gee, you know, Star Trek could use more female voices like yours. And I always, <laughs> I always think that is a great compliment, despite what the boy. I don't think I shared those letters with anyone, by the way. Oh, that sounds like a good move. <laughs> well, as you've mentioned, each of the writers did have their own unique styles, um, and you know, and these were your words on the the Blu-ray, by the way. You were labelled as the girly one, due to your preference <laughs> for writing episodes with that strong emotional pull. Uh-huh. Um, and and one thing I've I've noticed in reviewing your episodes again recently is that there's this recurring theme of of not just love stories but almost tragic love stories. Um, and I think of um, one of my favourite episodes being um, the perfect mate, which which to me is is quite a tragedy. Um, but also tales of family, um, and uh, you know in different ways of looking at family and um, and, and father son relationships too. Um, mm-hmm. So, what is it about these themes that appeal to you, and how do they reflect your own values? I think for me, the the great appeal of science fiction is being able to refract these classic themes through a science fiction prism, you know. And um, Star Trek was a such a great sandbox to play in because anything was possible, and you know, one week would do. A thrilling adventure and the next week we could do a small little chamber piece you know that was just about people's hearts you know a love story or whatever but you know just going from you know Riker a transporter accident and there's a Riker double who's mm. still in love with Troy you know what a great beginning you know how could you mess that up <laughs> gives them a second chance to yeah you know that. so that's what we were constantly uh, uh, looking for, you know, was it was an idea that you just knew there was something to mine there, you know, mm-hmm. um, and um, and that's just where I gravitated. I tend to gravitate towards those stories, and I still do, you know. I mean, the, the 4400 was, a, I think, you know, a science fiction story, but it was, you know, it had, it had I hopefully had a lot of heart, you know, and you just, I've always been intrigued by that. Well, I, I think of um, something like Team Wolf as well, which, uh, you know, it's a brilliant series and, and it just it reminds me as well of some of that, that stuff that you did, particularly in The Next Generation. Well, you know, I mean, that was a – that though I'm not 
involved with the show that much right now anymore. But, you know, uh, when I first started working with Jeff Davis um, on the pilot story and, and the first season, you know, that's we were definitely focused, really focusing in on this whole idea of, you know, uh, this condition besetting this adolescent boy and, you know, this kind of out of control sexuality almost and, mm. and wanted to be a love story and, you know, every choice we made along the way was intended to amplify that, you know, the idea that Allison would be, um, doesn't know it, but her father's a hunter mm. you know, he has, and all those things. So, you know, you just, you just try to set it up for sort of maximum collision between the characters. Yeah. Yep. Um, actually on the subject of, uh, Thomas Riker, you might be interested to know that a couple of years ago I was at a convention and I got the chance to ask Jonathan Frakes a question at his panel. It, it was in relation to Tom and, and Will Riker and he happened to comment that he was talking to Marina Sirtis about that episode one day and she commented that she thought that Tom Riker was a much better kisser than Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, because he had his heart in it. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, because Will Will Riker and Deanna Troy were as famously stated in the original Next Generation Bible were just two adults who <laughs> like each other and sometimes have sex. But <laughs> that doesn't mean it doesn't have to be more than that. <laughs> How modern of them! Yes, it was very. It was very. Gene had this idea about you know, people being a little more evolved and not being so hung up. On, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not me, I guess. So. Uh, well, um, Renee, I've taken a few uh, fan questions from Twitter that I'd like to okay. run by you now. Um, the first one um, is from uh, someone by the, that goes by the handle of at Foolish Lego. And what he, right. he has asked is, if a Deep Space Nine movie were to be made, what plot would you like... Uh, to see it have? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I certainly would love to know what became of Cisco. Um, you know, it ended with this bittersweet goodbye, you know, but this but this promise of, of, of a return. You know, there was so many, there were so many story threads in that series. Uh, I'd love to pick up the Dax storyline and, and, and see how she's faring mm. in her life, continuing, you know, yet at the same time, it was, it, I, at least, at least the way I, I experienced it, it was, it was such a satisfying conclusion that, you mm. know, maybe it's best left the way it, the way it ended. I don't know. Well, do well, I've actually had another question that, that is from another Twitter user, uh, Mark Stamper, who, um, is one of our Trekmate people who um, along those lines has said, what do you think of the possible alternate ending to Deep Space Nine where the whole universe was a figment of Benny Russell's imagination? Oh, that's a, that's a fun idea. I, gosh, is that an original idea or is that something that was, that's been out there? Is that people been kicking that around? Well, I heard that it was actually proposed by one of the writers and rejected. I, it, I mean, it does ring a bell. I think, I think, uh, I feel like it was something Ron briefly wanted to do, you know, mm. I'm sure we, I'm sure we all argued, you know, as we did, um, passionately, you know, it actually uh, sounds like a very Brannon idea. 
Yeah, though Brandon wouldn't have been in that show, so yeah, yeah, I was doing Voyager at that point, but but you know, I think cooler heads prevailed there. You know, while it's it's trippy and it's fun, it it it. I mean, there are some people who still think that the whole uh, Bob Newhart, you know, Bob Newhart's second series, which ended with you know it all being a dream, <laughs> or I think you know, it's Saint Elsewhere, I believe, was a show that ended that way. Mm. Um, you know, it it. Television has this wonderful, you know, you you spend five years watching a show or seven years or whatever it is. I mean, you can get really invested in it and, and just suddenly say, oh, well, none of that really happened. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that it would have gone down so well. Yeah. But um, an interesting idea nonetheless. So um, uh, the next question we had was from Colin Higgins, um, and he's asked, uh, what was the inspiration behind the Deep Space Nine episode, Improbable Cause, and were you happy with how it turned out on screen? You know, it's funny that 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 story began life as a pitch um, by Rob Lederman, who was one of our editors. Uh, and I believe Rob Lederman is also maybe the only person in Star Trek history who ever wrote a story, edited episodes, and directed episodes. Um, I may be wrong about that, but, uh, you know, and it was one of those, the minute you hear it, you, we knew, you know, that there was a story there that, you know, Garrick's shop explodes, Odo begins an investigation. He comes to believe that Odo did it on purpose himself. I'm sorry, Odo, Garrick. Garrick's shop explodes and that, and and Odo comes to believe that Garrick did it himself. I think Bob Lederman had no way of knowing all our big plans for the, you know, the Dominion War and the, mm. and the Romulan involvement and all that stuff. And I think it was just serendipity that he pitched that as we were mulling, you know, how to move some of those pieces around. And it just sort of slotted right in as a great beginning to what became a two-part episode. Yeah. Um, with sort of uh, cloak and dagger and, and, and you know, secret moves. So, yeah, it, it turned out well. Excellent. Um, now, the last question I've got for you from a Twitter fan is from uh, Michelle, and uh, she has asked, why didn't Avery Brooks and Chase Masterson sing more on the show? Well, that's a good question. I mean, they're <laughs> both, uh, you know, both accomplished singers. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, you know, Cisco was too busy cooking, I guess, mm. to, uh, <laughs> to sing. I guess it just didn't didn't come out in character. Well, I guess we wouldn't want either one of them to really upstage Vic Fontaine either, would we? <laughs> exactly. Though I do remember that Robert Wolf, one day he came in, and because everyone had always been talking about, you know, can can we do a musical, mm. a musical episode? Um, and Robert came in one day and said, saying, I figured out how to do it. I had a dream. I even figured out the tech. But the, we were like, what? And he goes, basically, <laughs> he'd come up with this idea that some kind of phenomenon or virus or whatever had disabled or, or altered our linguistic capacity and that people were struck mute and they realized the only way they could speak or communicate was if they sang. <laughs> so we were going to do this operetta. Well, quite, it didn't pass. It didn't survive breakfast. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> It, you know, it would have given Avery a chance to do some more singing. So. Oh, dear. Yeah, that would have been fun. <laughs> um, I, I particularly would have liked to have seen Worf singing. It wouldn't surprise me if he if he had a good voice too. Mm. Um, 
Now, now, just moving on a little bit, uh, you worked as um, executive producer on Terra Nova um, mm. with uh, another Star Trek writer and producer, Brandon Braga. And I'm wondering, how did that collaboration come about and what was the um, experience of doing cool dinosaur stuff with Steven Spielberg like? It was a great experience. Um, Brandon, Brandon brought me in on that project. I mean, he had been involved with it for a good year before before I did it. Um, he asked me to, to be his partner uh, on it, you know, just honestly three or four weeks before it went into the pilot went into production. He said, come to Australia with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, I can't go to Australia for eight weeks. I have, you know, I have uh, my wife's pregnant and, you know, I have a, I think probably a three-year-old and a, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Mm. I can't leave them for that long. And uh, he said, well, what if they could come too? And I said, I, I, I really doubt my wife's going to want to do that. And I, and I went inside. I was working outside at my uh, guest house. And I said, honey, how would you feel about going to Australia for a little while? And she was like, I've always wanted to go. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always wanted to be there. So so we, we went. And um, it was an amazing experience. Um, it was a fun show in many ways. It had, you know, some of the DNA of Star Trek. It had some of the optimism of, you know, the sort of the, of the of civilization rising from the ashes. Mm. You know, that's part of the backstory history of the Star Trek universe is that there had been, out of, you know, that the Federation grew out of the ashes of, of a terrible calamities. Um, so, you know, and, and it had it had a had a family at the core, and and we had we had lots of plans for the second season and we we're very disappointed not to be able to continue it yeah i really love terra nova um and and the other thing that that struck me about that show it's is it really was a great family drama as well um so and i think that was a really good fit for you yeah it was you know we we, we you know the, the challenge of terra nova unfortunately you know the premise was so wide open you know it could, it could, the tone could be very different and everybody who heard the pitch, you know, got the possibilities. And everybody who heard it sort of saw a different movie in a weird, weird way. Mm. And uh, I think we, I think that's what hurt us in the early going is that, you know, everybody wanted it to be different. And every, everyone wanted it to be a different thing. You know, the network and the studio and, you know, Steven Spielberg and Peter Chernin and, you know, me and Brandon, everybody, you know. Mm. We, we found our footing, I think, of, you know, in the, in the second half. Um, and it was becoming a little bit more the show that, that we wanted to do. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it didn't happen. Well, looking so. back over over that first season, it did. It does actually feel quite cohesive as a show. You know, I mean, we managed to we managed to find our way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's nice to hear. You know, or in the early going, there were a lot of things we weren't allowed to do. You mm. know. We, we 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 imagined doing you know a parallel storyline taking place in in 2047 or 2059 whatever the year it was mm. taking place in the future you know and and an unfolding conspiracy you know um, between past and present that we thought could be really cool but you know in the early going the network wanted to be really family friendly um, and uh, didn't want a bunch of sci-fi and they wanted Turnover to be a happy place where you'd want to go, you know. So it was it was a little house on the prairie with dinosaurs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were told they wanted it to be and we were like a great cast. Um, it was kind of cool. 
Um, and and one of the things that was so special about this show as well is the um, is the way that the dinosaurs were done and on such a tight schedule for TV, but looking just as good as what you would see on the big screen. Kevin, our visual effects supervisor, was the only guy that when we were interviewing, um, we said, well, here, here's the budget, this is the schedule, and every special effects house basically said, can't be done. Mm. Sorry, can't be done. And he's the only one who said, I'll do it. And he, and he, and he just rose to that challenge and actually came up with some very groundbreaking uh, techniques to make it doable. Uh, including some some very unique takes on on motion capture, um, and we have some great footage of him tromping around the Green Street stage. No, he's not in costume or anything, but because one of the hardest things about the dinosaurs was was getting their footfall right, mm-hmm. making them appear heavy. So he realized that if he if he actually captured real instead of trying to animate the whole thing and just make it all up in a computer, get those footfalls. And then build up from there, mm. um, and was able to figure out this sort of way of doing it. That's it's become a uh, my understanding has become sort of an industry standard for certain types of uh, special effects applications. That's great. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to move on now to the second round of moving along with Ala Renee. Okay, so what would be your drink of choice? Romulan ale, blood wine, Earl Grey or prune juice? Romulan ale. <laughs> <laughs> what would we most likely find you doing on the holodeck? Throwing snowballs at Picard with Wesley? Limbering up with Beverly and Deanna, or enjoying a mud bath with Luxana Troy. Oh my gosh! Can I have a D? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'd throw snowballs. Can I throw snowballs at Luxana Troy? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll give you that one. Um, Which Star Trek episode do you prefer? Spock's brain, Sub Rosa, or Move Along Home? Uh, Sub Rosa, absolutely. Sub Rosa has has what I consider to be one of the greatest lines in all of Star Trek, which is, you know, this in this big sort of swelling romantic moment, and this alien posing as this guy has Beverly Crusher in his arms, and she's like, "How did you? How did you even get here? How did you get to the ship?" And he's holding her, and he says, "I came along the power transfer beam." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those. It tickles me every time I think about it. So, so which TO episode, TOS episode depicts your illness of choice? The Naked Time or This Side of Paradise? I think This Side of Paradise is a little, would be a little more fun. <laughs> <to me. laughs> yeah. um, the Naked Time is just a little too close to home, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, lastly, who's the better captain, Picard or Cisco? Um, wow, that's just that's you're asking me to. <laughs> that's like a Solomon Solomonic choice, um, you know. I mean, Picard. Picard carried, I think, the hardest you know, for me, and I, I, I sort of alluded to this earlier when I, when the when the original. 
uh, Next Generation, when the Next Generation first came on the air, I was both really excited, but also a little trepidatious. You know, was I going to be able to embrace this? And who could ever be Kirk or a Kirk like who was going to be the captain? You know, I, and you know, I didn't know anything about it really as I tuned in. And Patrick Stewart just really pulled off something so improbable and so uh, it was such an interesting choice. You know, not at all. I think what at all what they set out to when they probably first started casting, but he was so different that he made it work. You know, and I think I think there would be no modern star. I don't think the show would have survived. Um, if people hadn't latched onto him the way they did, that's not, I know the way I did. Mm. I, you know, there was a lot of silliness in those first few seasons. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 it could have easily become a kids show, um, just for kids. You know, and he sort of gave it this weight, and that kept me watching um, until the show really sort of found its found its stride. I, I think in the third season when Michael Pillar came aboard. Mm. So I give it to Picard. Excellent. Well done. And uh, as I said, we'll, we'll let the listeners judge your answers there. No, I, I mean, <laughs> if I had to choose who to, you know, who to, who to have my back with in a, in a battle, yeah. <laughs> I'd, probably choose, I'd probably choose Cisco. But if I had to choose someone to keep me out of a battle, I'd choose Picard. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, so um, just before we finish up today, Renee, um, what projects are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm working on a, a feature uh, adaptation of uh, a Philip K. Dick short story, uh, and I'm working with Mark Forster, the director of uh, World War Z, most recently, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a, you know, and also with the Philip K. Dick estate, his daughter, um, who has a production company here in town, and has, be- has decided to become more involved with with her father's intellectual properties because uh, some of the movies that have come out, she hasn't been happy with the way that they turned out. So it's a, it's, it's actually kind of a, it's a science fiction love story, you know, mm. uh, based on, on uh, this book, the short story called The Electric Ant. And uh, working with Mark, uh, you know, in addition to the big movies like World War Z, he's done these really, you know, emotional things like Monster's Ball and, and you know, Finding Neverland. So he's a really interesting, really interesting guy. And we've been having a lot of, a lot of fun working on it. Excellent. And, uh, and once again, that sounds, you know, very much in, in line with your style, like we've discussed earlier too. I hope to get many fan mails saying that Hollywood <laughs> are female screenwriters. <laughs> <laughs> Here's hoping. Here's hoping. So this interview wouldn't have been possible without the assistance of a number of people within the Star Trek community, including Dave Rossi, Mark Stamper, Colin Higgins and Tristan Riddell. And of course, Renee, the generous donation of your time today has been greatly appreciated. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, both professionally and as a fellow Star Trek fan. Uh, me too, Kay. It's been, it's been a great stroll down memory lane uh, and I really enjoy being on your show. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Renee. You've been listening to the TrekMate Podcast. Would you like to get a hold of us? Visit trekmate.org.uk and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Make it so.
Don't worry, we will get to the bottom of this. All I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer by. I don't want excuses, I want answers. Am I authorized to enter the neutral zone? How do you think that tells me about your character? Captain's log, stardate 3541.9. Program complete. Enter when ready.